Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Aaron Lowe. And if this is your first episode and you're wondering what this whole thing is all about, well, I'll tell you. Every week, I find my head surgically attached to the body of a different friend and cinephile. Together, we are given a note containing a theme, sometimes specific and sometimes vague. Our job is then to pick a pair of movies that fit that theme and then watch and discuss. This is The Incredible Two-Headed Podcast. everybody welcome back to another week another show uh joining me today for a return visit i guess i'm pretty happy about it. I've, I've been trying to get her back on the show for a while everybody say hello to Benicky leblanc hello there you you were on a while back we talked about one of my favorites the beyond and uh cemetery man so actually two of my favorites we, we had good talk there um i'm really anxious to get you back on i thought that was a really fun con conversation i'm glad we were able to kind of figure out something to talk about again together i know things have been getting a little bit more busy for the both of us so uh, i'm glad the timing worked out on this yeah thanks for having me back it's always a fun time yeah no anytime anytime so what have you what's been going on in your world what have you been up to lately well um it's getting to be summer here which is always really nice you know we sit through those really long winters and i've been feeling a lot better with the increase in daylight we have just kind mm. of more energy yeah. And coinciding with that, of course, uh, we're about 50% vaccinated here in Anchorage right now. Um, and so a lot of live shows are really starting to pick up. A couple months ago, they started again, but there was more restrictions. But now they're kind of, there's less restrictions there and they can do more full capacity type situations. Um, I really wish more people would get vaccinated, but I feel Beautiful. like 50%. Yeah. I mean, it's Alaska. I feel like at 50% in Anchorage, that's, sadly maybe as good as it's going to get I'm. i hope more people get the vaccine but we'll see so i'm pretty excited about that because i will be performing on june 5th um with sweet cheeks cabaret i'll be a guest with them and they have this really cute venue called the cheeky room um it's downtown in the old matanuska brewing company which is now the broken blender but the venue is the cheeky room it's downstairs and it'll be uh saturday june 5th and i'm Really looking forward to that. I'm going to be bringing um, two of my favorite acts out, and it kind of gives me this reason to put some love back into them, and you know, kind of even reconnect with that part of myself that that's this performer, this entertainer. I mean, I kind of I did a little bit of online stuff during all the COVID madness, but not a lot. Life was just overwhelming, and I struggled with translating myself to video, living alone, like being your own videographer, all of that stuff. So. Um, I'm really looking forward to getting back to live entertainment and I've missed so many people and I've missed the stage, of course. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah, I've, I can imagine. I'm really happy to see those numbers. Well, um, that was quite a long tangent and most likely none of it's going to go in. Okay, <laughs> uh, great. <laughs> some, of, some of it is. I just feel like, like it comes up all the time because it's like, what can you talk about? It's such a big part of our life, but I do end up like cutting out most of the talk that we have about uh, 
like say coronavirus or, or totally or stuff like that. Not that yeah. I want, not that I want this to be an apolitical show. I, I want people to talk about what they want to talk about, but I, I just feel at a certain point, like people just, people kind of get sick of hearing about the pandemic. They do. It gets re- redundant. And if they log in to listen to a show about, you know, Vincent Price. Yeah. And all they're hearing is, you know, 15 minutes of current affairs. They they might lose interest. Yeah. It, it has come up though, tangentially in this, because we talked about Last Man on Earth and mm-hmm. I Am Legend and Omega Man. And those, that, like, you can't not talk about current events while you're talking about those movies these days. But uh, I think for what we're talking about today, maybe we can, we can just kind of like skip ahead and get to uh, what we're here to talk about. 100%. So today I don't have a very clever like theme or, or name. Like the movies here are thematically linked, I believe, but I, I just don't, I didn't come up with any clever note. Uh, instead, we're basing all movies. I'm calling the episode 1959. We're picking movies from the year of 1959. In 1959, he had five films. He had The Big Circus, which I still haven't seen. I've seen the rest of them on this list now. Uh, but he had The Big Circus. He had his two William Castle films, House on Haunted Hill and The Tingler. He had the sequel, Return of the Fly. And he had your pick. The Bat. That's right. So we're going to be talking about a little bit of his career. And he had some TV as well, I think, that came out that year. Uh, he had a guest spot on a, a show called Riverboat. Um, but we're going to be talking just about these two films. Maybe we'll, we'll mention the others a little bit. But... Uh, how about we take a break, come back, and we'll talk about my pick, House on Haunted Hill. I'm Vincent Price, and you're invited to my party in the House on Haunted Hill, where so far the ghosts have murdered only seven people. So won't you come and make it eight? You'll see human heads without bodies. Mysterious pools of blood dripping from the ceiling. The walls move slowly in against you. Don't try to escape, you can't. So won't you join me in the house on Haunted Hill? Hooray. Or you'll be late for your own funeral. In the house on Haunted Hill, Vincent Price plays deranged millionaire Frederick Loren, who, for his wife's birthday, has invited five strangers to a haunted house party, where each guest will be given $10,000 for staying the night. This quasi-supernatural mystery film was a big hit for gimmick-happy director William Castle, who would routine with star Vincent Price later this same year for The Tingler. Now, of course, I've, I've seen this one before. I've seen this a bunch of times, but I watched it a few months ago. We were thinking about doing this with another guest, um, and that, that episode never happened. Uh, so I'm, I'm happy to finally get a chance to talk about this one. This one's been kind of a, a sneaky favorite of mine 
it, it's remembered as a classic. Like it, it's one of Vincent Price's most famous films, I think. I always think about it and go, oh yeah, that, that's a good movie. That, that's a fun movie. And then as soon as it starts, the opening of the movie every time as Elisha Cook Jr.'s face, like disembodied head floats to the camera and starts <laughs> speaking, I, I just immediately am like, oh yeah, I write, that's right. This movie is terrific. And, and I just, I, I forget all the time how great this movie is. But this is, I think, just a ton of fun. But I'm anxious to hear what you think about it. What, do you, what are your thoughts on ha- House on Haunted Hill? It is very campy and fun. I love it. I, well, there's actually quite a bit of the same theme today with, I think, The Bat and House on Haunted Hill. Is yes. They're both kind of a whodunit situation, like a mystery. The, <laughs> the special effects, or lack thereof, are fantastic. I love them. Um, and I was going to make a comment on the two cameos uh, when it first starts and um, just seeing like their heads and their, you know, with these stories and, and Watson is constantly just like, beware, like the whole time. It's great. Yeah. Um, but I love, you know, just even listening, like, so Vincent Price with like the Lux radio or like Tales of Terror, just, I love just listening to Vincent Price the way he talks, like that transatlantic accent. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I, I find both movies today, the bat and house on haunted hill, both kind of, they kind of fall into those comfort movies. I think I said the same thing about the last one we did, but um, I love them both. They're great. I, I could just even just have it on the, you know, a lot of times with my costuming and stuff, I'll have movies on in the background that I'll just be watching while I, while I work. And, and th- these are definitely some of the ones I'll do that too. They're very calming and, I don't know. I love both of them. I agree. I agree. I like this movie a lot. Like I, I, I will put on some of these mid-century Vincent Price films in the background. Like um, earlier today, I was just doing some stuff around the house and, and cooking and, and kind of playing with my daughter. And I just had, um, I had Comedy of Terrors on in the background because I, I, I'm doing a bunch of Vincent Price this month and it got me to kind of like open up all my, those Blu-ray sets and uh, pull out my old DVDs. And I've been watching just like a bunch of Vincent Price. And this is, this is very calming. I, I love Vincent Price's voice. I, I mentioned it before, I mentioned it last episode that Vincent Price is definitely the celebrity I wish I had been able to meet. Uh, that He seems so genuine and it seems like he would just be very a warm presence like somebody that would be fun to sit and listen to him talk and tell stories and he has like a such this this kind of like cultured way of speaking that, that's still like a little bit every man like it, it it's not like snooty you know mm-hmm. um, i don't know if i'm explaining it anybody that knows vincent price knows what i'm trying to say you are yeah i, I just i can't i i can't think of any other better way to say it exactly that's why i just love listening to him so much like it I don't know if you've ever listened to any of his old radio appearances. Yeah. But just love listening to him talk. Yeah. I'm trying to remember the name of the show that he did. Uh, Cause you were talking, you said Lux radio theater, but he had um, this collection of audio dramas. Was it that the tales of terror? Maybe. Cause I remember the image for a while was my, my avatar. And it was the in Vincent Price's head, like mounted on a wall. I can't remember what it was called, but I listened to a bunch of those. I have a collection of uh, Edgar Allan Poe 
read by him and Basil mm-hmm. Rathbone. And I like, I listen to those in October often. Um, yeah, he's got a really great voice, like a very, well, recognizable voice, obviously. I've seen this movie before, obviously. Uh, when I was first getting into Vincent Price, like really getting, like getting into his filmography in my 20s, I hadn't seen this movie yet. And it was available primarily on like crummy public domain videos and DVDs. And it took me a little while to get into it, not not to get into it, but to just finally watch it. Because I, I kind of had this, the, the, I mean, the way it looked in its release and its packaging, it just didn't fill me with any confidence. I was like, oh, it's William Castle. Um, I saw The Tingler in high school, but House on Haunted Hill, I was just kind of like, I think I know what this movie is going to be about and I'm not as, as interested in it as I am in, in the Poe pictures or the, um, the one I, I keep bringing up as, as kind of the gold standard uh, at being abominable Dr. Fibes, mm-hmm. which, which is why I kind of think that this is for me anyway, a secret great movie because, or an underrated great movie. And it, it's me. I know everybody realizes this is a good movie. It's got a, a really great rating audiences loved it I, it's just kind of like I, I have a hard time getting past my initial conceptions and I don't know why but I always kind of go back to that when I think about the movie and then when I watch it I'm like no this movie is terrific I'm just I, I don't know why I can't keep that in, my, in mind mm-hmm. what was I gonna say oh I don't know do you when you were watching this how were you how were you watching it this time how was I watching it this time? Yeah, do you, do you have it on DVD or, or or on YouTube or what? I actually um, switched from both so I could have it on my phone as I was doing some stuff. Um, I guess it's worth mentioning right now, both The Bat and House on Haunted Hill. They're both on Prime right now. Oh, okay. So you can, you can watch them there. Um, for The Bat, I just did all DVD. And then for House on Haunted Hill, I just kind of switched back and forth. So some of it was just on my, my phone, but. So I I watched I watched the bat on Tubi because I did not realize and that has ads but I didn't realize mm-hmm. I looked it up I looked on Prime and I didn't see it right away so I didn't I didn't watch it there but um, I have the Blu-ray for House on Haunted Hill uh, Scream Factory put out three five movie collections of Vincent Price and I got I have those and House on Haunted Hill on this Blu-ray looks fantastic. It looks so much better, obviously, than those those public domain DVDs that I had, mm. which is another thing. Maybe maybe it's just like remembering how it looked way back when. But uh, I have my, so I have my first note here. I don't know if anybody's going to pick up on this or if it was just me or if I'm just crazy, but the opening music, not, not necessarily the theme, the House on Haunted Hill theme, but the music as the guests are walking into the house, sounds very much like an instrumental orchestral version of it was a very good year by Frank Sinatra. I'm, I'm going to put some of that music in here. Hmm. So the listener will hear it. You're just going to have to trust me, I guess. And you can go back and listen to it later.
Actually, I actually went to look to see if maybe it was, but uh, I couldn't find anything. I, I, I think I might be the only person. I don't see anybody online. I didn't see anybody saying, like, usually you Google and you can find somebody like, is it just me or does this sound like, and there's nobody doing that. Oh, well, next time I watch it, I'll have to pay attention right there. Movie opens with Elisha Cook Jr. talking about the ghosts in the house. And, and uh, he's saying, like, they're moving around tonight. They're very, very active and angry. And then it cuts to, not cuts to, but then his head is replaced by Vincent Price's disembodied head. And they were both talking directly to the camera. And Vincent Price is talking about his wife and inviting the the guests. And that's when we we're introduced to the guests driving up to the house in hearses. And, uh, and of course, the house, the exteriors anyway, were, uh, were filmed at the Ennis house. The Yes. Uh... Um, Frank Lloyd Wright and his house is always have so this one's got all these Mayan themes and the other house I associate with him is the Soudan house which is associated with Black Dahlia the the wait Soudan house uh-huh I, I wasn't aware of that I'm looking at it now that wow that's really cool looking I like that a lot yeah I mean I the Ennis house familiar to anybody that watches a lot of movies a lot of interiors are in are shot in there i i kind of wonder why movies would still shoot at the ennis house because it's so recognizable as a <laughs> house you see in a bunch of movies um but uh i i drove up to it when i used to drive for uber down here and one night i dropped somebody off near where the ennis house is so i drove over to look at it and it, it's a very very narrow street the house is pretty much walled off now you can't like the exterior doesn't the exterior landing doesn't look anything like it does in this movie anymore and you can't really see the house at least not at night but you can still get tours and go in there um so i drove by it i i I could recognize it from the top but yeah it's just a big wall out in front of it nowadays Mm. what i i kind of really like about this movie and we mentioned it already that both of these movies are, are kind of whodunits uh i really like the fun mystery at this there's, there's a really nice tone that it gets called campy a lot and and we had this argument in the last episode whether or not i w- you could consider vincent price campy i think vincent price can definitely be considered campy at times i think this movie well, first of all, 
Elisha Cook Jr. If anybody in this movie is being campy, it's Elisha Cook Jr. Who is really <laughs> like kind of like hamming it up. Fucking Watson. Yeah, in a very fun way. But I think this movie avoids camp and is tongue in cheek. But I, I really like the tone of this. I like that it's it's funny, but also serious at the right moments. Uh, the melodrama, of course, like the romance that's budding in the storyline, like I don't care as much about. But um, I, I think there's a really nice tone to this. And I think it genuinely has some scary moments, like the the caretaker, the blind caretaker lady. The double <laughs> Where she just has her hands out like claws. But she's so <laughs> creepy looking. I love her. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> no, that part is that part is so fucking funny to me because she's just like with her <laughs> her claws just like out in the out in the air like just coming at her yeah it does it does kind of raise the question how much of this was um staged like how much were the the caretakers in on it the the that leave because it seems like there's a couple of different factions here that we find out we find out that Vincent Price has been married several times and his wife and him do not get along. She's just, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's saying that she's just married him for the money, but it's certainly, there's no love in that relationship anymore, but she won't divorce him because she's, uh, she's holding out for um, the, a larger fortune or won't, won't just take a payout. She's like, yeah, I, I want it all. Yeah. I kind of get the impression that, like when she's in her dressing area getting ready and she's, you know, I'm not coming to this party. And we, we find out she originally wanted the party, but he did not invite anyone they know. And instead he picked all of his own guests. And yeah. so she's not wanting to go. And you kind of see this like controlling abusive side where he's, he grabs her by the hair for a minute. And, you know, he's like, no, you're going to this party. Um, I kind of got the impression that, you know, maybe at first, married for love and interest and probably some money but he was super jealous and controlling during their relationship as well and i think that like drove her away even if her initial mo motivations weren't that there but but you hear about his history and now he's had all these young wives like two in their 20s both died of heart attacks i don't think so you know yeah and especially once we find out what happened in this like what happens in this movie um, mm -hmm. but i'm wondering like how much of this was pre-planned in in that like the caretakers seem they're not acting like caretakers until they're revealed to be caretakers they're being incredibly creepy like not only is that blind woman <laughs> just standing there with her like the silent scream and her claws out but later she kind of emerges <laughs> from the shadows and then goes back in like what was she doing i love there? her which, which one of these couples, like the, the warring husband and wife, which one of them hired the caretakers to scare the, the guests? Or did they just hire them to make them because it's a haunted house party? I, I'm thinking, well, it was duo because Lauren wanted to, you know, obviously there's some smoke and mirrors there. He wants the guests to get scared. You spend the night, you get $10,000. Um, but then, you know, we know that there's the, you know, Dr. Trent and Annabelle are doing their own thing on the side, essentially trying to drive Nora insane so that she will kill 
well, um, not Wells, <laughs> that's the bat, uh, so that she will kill Lauren. So there's just a lot going on there. And yeah, I they really try to make everything look haunted as fuck and scare particularly her. I mean, everyone, but particularly Nora. So I felt like a lot of it was just plotting mostly on their end. I mean. Yeah, it that, that's true. Um, I guess I guess this is a movie that really we shouldn't tear apart the plot because it is kind of smoke and mirrors, right? Like it, 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 it's trying to keep you entertained so that you don't ask a bunch of questions about the logic of a lot of it. Um, mm -hmm. Because certainly at the end, I don't understand. Like, I mean, he seemed to the film's credit. Um, Vincent Price in the end doesn't seem to believe that he's going to get away with killing his wife and her lover even even though they were trying to kill him and he could, he's probably going to argue that it was self-defense <laughs> in a way and, and he kind of does where he says that the the guy tried to throw him into the acid and uh, he so he threw him instead which is true but he says just basically like I'm done with it I'm ready for the law to de to decide so yeah, he he's oh gosh, I I completely lost where I was going with that. Uh, but I mean, I guess it doesn't matter the particulars. Only that the husband and wife hate each other. The wife is conspiring with one of the guests to have Vincent Price killed by another guest, and Vincent Price is kind of orchestrating everything to kill them, which did not seem like the best solution to me the best solution to me would have been to just like get a divorce or have them <laughs> caught in the act by the other guests instead of killing them and now it's his word against the the you know the dead people he he could have had them exposed in front of the guests and been like i don't owe this person any alimony now yeah i think it's a cool plot twist in that we already suspect him for being shady from the get-go oh yeah and then we kind of learn that, oh, like that's, you know, there's something else going on here. But then in the end, you know, the, there's a twist there and that whatever they did, he was always two steps ahead of them. So like Nora's guns full of blanks, like he already planned all of that, knowing that that's what they were up to. So whatever they did, he was two steps ahead. That one's a lot of fun. And I kind of notated some of the, like there's blood, blood seems to be dripping on Ruth a couple times during the film first in the hallway and then again in her room. Yeah. And one of the things I had thought about was like, what, what of these things that are happening, like the chandelier falling on Nora, obviously that one was planned, but what of these things are actually happening because of the ghosts that Watson keeps going on about? And what of these things are just parlor tricks designed to drive the guests crazy? They don't really reveal any of that. But I think it's an assumption that most of it came from Annabelle and Dr. Trent. That's yeah, I, I I agree. I think that's that's probably what the implication is. But I do like that Watson at the end is just like, oh, there's two more ghosts now, and, and they're yeah. going to be coming after me. He's so ominous the whole time. It's great. It is. He, Elisha Cook Jr. is so good in these. He's a he's a character actor that shows up all the time. And, and he's he always just looks like flustered. He looks like 
he looks like he's always incredibly worried and just about to crack at any second. That's just how his face looks, but he's, he's really, uh, really great. And he shows up in a couple of these movies. He was just in one we watched for movies. Oh, he was in the haunted palace. We just watched that for last week's. Oh, it, <laughs> one thing with Ruth where, where he, <laughs> speaking of Watson, after the blood drips on her, he's like, you've been marked. And <laughs> Vincent Price's character, um, cause she just asks, well, why would anyone want to mark me? Like, what would their interest be in me? And <laughs> Vincent Price is like any self-respecting ghost. Like, I just thought that that was great. That whole line that he did. Yeah. Uh, House on Haunted Hill. Have you you've seen the remake from 1999? A long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. I, watched, I haven't watched it recently. I did watch it recently. I watched both of these back to back. I saw House on Haunted Hill 1999 in the theaters. And my memory was that the ghost stuff was really cool up until the finale of that movie. And I rewatched it. And oh man, the movie is 1999 in the worst way. It, it's, got, <laughs> it, it's got those like really quick uh, editing, that editing where it looks like, you know, the, the screen's being chopped up a bit because it's just like, like a bunch of quick shots and like flashing of everything going to negative or just bright lights. It's so ugly in a way. And I don't think the movie is anywhere near as fun as the original, but I do think the decision to actually make it outright supernatural and some of the the things that the ghosts do some of the ways that the haunting manifests i think are really great i think now i'm done with the movie like i i wish i hadn't rewatched it in a way because i wish i had just kept that very positive theatrical experience in my head i mean it is what it is it's not the worst thing in the world i understand that people are fans of it and and i'm not going to say anything bad about that i just uh, the original is is so much better to me. Yeah, I, I fully agree. Um, I've seen the remake a couple times, but it's it's been a long time. And actually, now that I think about it, I could have watched it before we did this podcast too to you know maybe have some comparisons there. But it's very different. The remake of I do remember this that the remake of House on Haunted Hill and the remake of Thirteen Ghosts kind of blended together. They both yeah. came out. They both came out in the late nineties, right? The 13 ghosts i think 13 ghosts was 2000 or 2001 yeah like the early 2000s so you know only a couple years apart but there were a lot of things about that that kind of blended together to me but in both cases i i do prefer the original original 13 ghosts and original uh, house on haunted hill for sure uh so i'm gonna make a, a terrible admission i have to do this at least once an episode it seems i have not <laughs> seen the original 13 ghosts um I have seen the remake of 13 Ghosts, which I remembered kind of finding, like, I don't like the term guilty pleasure because I don't feel bad about what I like, even if it's terrible. I just, you know, I like it. Um, <laughs> but I remembered 13 Ghosts as being kind of trashy fun. And then mm -hmm. I rewatched it recently. Also, just because uh, it was in my head, um, Amber had never seen the House on Haunted Hill remake, so they watched it with me. And then we were just like, oh, you know, House on or 13 Ghosts, 13 Ghosts is really fun. So let's watch that. And that, I think that holds up even less than House on Haunted Hill for me. It it is so ugly. It's just such an ugly movie. The the lighting, the saturation of the film, that editing I was talking about, it it's 
noisy. I remember kind of liking the ghost design and a lot of them in this one, I was just like, oh, that's, that's, that just looks bad. Um, not that it's bad makeup, it, it's good makeup. I just think the design is, like I said, ugly. Uh, and then there's the other one because they, they were doing that whole William Castle remake. Uh, Dark Castle was going to remake William Castle films. And they did these two. And then they did Ghost Ship, which wasn't a remake of a castle film, I don't think. Uh, and then they, I think they kind of like stopped with the William Castle remakes. I never saw Ghost Ship. I, I want to say that I did see Ghost Ship. And I might have even seen that one in the theater. But that would have been around the early 2000s, late 90s era too, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I, a couple of years later, I think. Um, let me look it up really quick. There's just things about William Castle's films that I'm like, just don't fuck with it. Yeah, they're good. I don't know, uh, but that's just me. Yeah, I never, okay. I, I never saw it. I'm surprised, but also not surprised. We never got a uh, Tingler remake, mm. but I guess that one would. I don't know. That one would be really hard uh, to redo for a modern audience without it coming across as like too cheesy. Yeah, I loved how <laughs> when it came out in the theaters originally, they had like the vibrating seats. Yeah, I I I think that one's great. I think House on Haunted Hill might be my favorite of these like this period because he he made all these movies in within like a year or two of each other. Um, and uh, of the three that he's most well known for right now, The Tingler, House on Haunted Hill, and Thirteen Ghosts, I think House on Haunted Hill is my favorite. But The Tingler is so much fun. I I love the 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 one use of color in that movie. I, I love how goofy and fun it is. The the bit that Vincent Price is yelling, like telling the audience they have to scream which would have coincided with the shocks as well. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I guess uh, back to House on Haunted Hill. So yeah, I was trying to, I started to listen to the commentary to House on Haunted Hill and he was, uh, it was talking about how William Castle got Vincent Price, that William Castle just kind of like saw him and approached him. And I don't even think he had a movie in mind for him yet, but he saw him and he's like, he said Vincent Price looked depressed. And so he went up to see what was going on. And Vincent Price just got uh, lost a role in a movie he had just found out that he really wanted to do. And so William Castle just kind of like saw his opportunity and started to started to pitch him on a horror movie that I don't think he had quite the, uh, the full idea of yet. And that turned out to be House on the Hill. Instead of paying Vincent Price like a, an upfront fee, William Castle decided to give him a piece of the movie and the movie was a humongous hit like based on a two hundred thousand dollar budget about it got back two and a half million dollars and so vincent price was basically whenever he'd see william castle just talking about another expensive piece of art that he was able to buy with his house on haunted hill money so good for him <laughs> <laughs> oh and you know of course the we we talked about the buzzing, the, the like shocking seats in uh, the Tingler. What was what was the one in Thirteen Ghosts? It, it, there were glasses on so that you could see the ghosts. Mm -hmm. And uh, for House on Haunted Hill, for some places he had Emergo or Emergo, which was uh, a pulley system with a skeleton 
rig to it to fly out over the audience uh, during the scene late in the movie where the skeleton rises from the vat of acid and goes goes towards Carol Omart. I love that. I love how it's just slowly walking towards her <laughs> and she just backs herself up into the acid. Just like that little push where <laughs> it's just like this, you know, fragile looking skeleton that's moving ever so slowly. Vincent Price is talking and then it just gives her like the slightest little push with its little bony hand. And she yeah. just like falls into the falls into the acid. I I love that contraption that Vincent Price is wearing when he comes out because the, the skeleton <laughs> isn't just like going on a straight path. It's like turning around and wandering around the, the room. And he comes out <laughs> and he's got this big collection of pulleys and levers in front of him. And it, it still wouldn't make sense for how the the skeleton is able to move in all those different directions, but it's still kind of fun. It just seems to me like once we get to this point, if he's just going to have her dumped in a vat of acid, like why bother with the skeleton? Why not just walk up behind her and push her in? If he's going <laughs> to, like, if he's going to push her in acid, like nobody else is there seeing the skeleton except for the audience, I suppose. Well, he has to still have showmanship. I mean, yeah, that's true. You know, <laughs> I thought that was great. And of course, William Castle and his tricks with this and macabre and uh the tingler in this year really did prompt hitchcock who had been uh, helming larger and larger studio films and bigger budgets and bigger set pieces it, it's really the movie that prompted him to grab his crew from the alfred hitchcock presents television show and go make a quick cheap and uh straightforward thriller in the you know which ended up being psycho this movie has a pretty big pop cultural footprint beyond just the movie itself being kind of a big hit and very well remembered. Did you, uh, did you ever, did you know that the theme song, the theme music originally had lyrics? Oh, for House on Haunted Hill? Yeah. Uh, this is something I learned in the commentary. I didn't watch all of it, but this is, this was in the commentary as well. It was, uh, there's a house on Haunted Hill where everything's lonely and still, lonely and still. And the ghost of a sigh when we whispered goodbye lingers on and each night gives a heartbroken cry. There's a house on a haunted hill where love walked. There's a where love walked. There's a strange silent chill, strange silent chill. There are memories that yearn for our hearts to return and a promise we failed to fulfill, but we'll never go back. No, we'll never go back to the house on a haunted hill. And it was not used for the movie. It was not used for the eventual 45 album version of this song uh it i'm not sure it was probably just you know you write theme songs or write lyrics to something like um i don't know if you know like gene roddenberry wrote lyrics for the star trek theme mm. and and they were never intended to be used on the in the film or not in the film they were never intended to be used in the series but the fact that they had lyrics meant that he could claim co-writership of it and get recording artists like royalties for the theme song even though he didn't write any of the music that's heard in the show does it say uh who wrote the lyrics to the house on Hunter hill uh i'm looking it up okay i'd be curious about that one. Oh, lyrics written by richard kane okay okay so the guy who did the music who did the theme song interesting so a lot of artists would put out like these novelty 45s and actually a lot of them come from like 57, 58 and 
I mean, a lot of them are doo-wop artists, but I'd yeah. be curious to look and see on that one. I'm surprised it never actually like was released as a song on its own. I don't know why. I understand why it's not in the film, but uh, I don't know why they wouldn't have released it if they did, because they did release a like a 45 of the theme song. Hmm. I'll have to take a look at that one. Okay. Well, um, I think, uh, do you have anything more you want to say about the house on a hill? I can't, I mean, we, we, it, it's, it's a great movie. I, I really enjoy this one. Um, like I said, it, it kind of sneaks up on me every time I watch it, how much I enjoy it, but I just find it's like a fun time all the way through. Yeah. I find all the murdering super comforting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love, I just love this one. But yeah, no, it is a great film and it just kind of leaves you with this, how much of that was just like the smoke and mirrors. And if it was, was it coming from Lauren who was already two steps ahead of the two that were plotting. And obviously they had their own smoke and mirrors going on with like Annabelle appearing to have hung herself. You know, there's just like a lot of fun twists in it. And I think we'll get into that a lot with the next film as well. But I would really like to have that organ that plays itself. <laughs> I just want to say, I would, I would love to have that. And the house, one of these Frank Lloyd Wright houses, was that one in Twin Peaks, the series? Um, I don't think so. Okay. I'm trying to think. The only thing it would have been is the Evelyn Marsh house from season two. Uh, but I don't, I'm trying to remember. Let me, now I got to look it up. Anna's house, Twin Peaks. Okay, that came up on Google right away. Um, oh, God. No, you know what it is? In uh, in Twin Peaks, the Invitation to Love soap opera that they're all watching in season one, that was filmed, the interiors at Anna's house. And so okay, you there see we go. all of the, the, because the interiors to the Anna's house are all those, um, you know, the square, like, it, I mean, it's a, is it Mayan? What is the blocks? Very recognizable. Those are in Twin Peaks. The um, okay. So that's you see that in stuff like Blade Runner and uh, trying to think of what a, another movie is. Uh, like a lot of sci-fi movies use it for some reason. Mm. You should look up um, the Southern House and the history of that one too. Yeah. If you want to learn a little bit more about. Frank Lloyd Wright's architecture but it's mostly like the intriguing story going on behind like who lived there and what kind of fucked up stuff happened there but yeah. um, it's really interesting at least to me oh well no I definitely will I definitely will uh, so I think that's that's going to do it for our talk on House on Haunted Hill uh, we are going to take a quick break move right back we'll be discussing from just a few months later in 1959 The Bat I'm Vincent Price You'll be just as safe in this house of fear as any of the other five victims murdered by the bat. In all of the annals of mystery, there's never been a more elusive, fearsome, and cunning killer. He'll lure you through hidden passages to make you his next victim. But nobody lives forever, so why be afraid of the bat?
How long's he been dead? Oh, I'd say about a half an hour. You believe it was the bat? That's a bat's trademark. Perhaps he's still in the house. That's possible. It says here that the bat never leaves no fingerprints. That's understandable. Having no face, he probably has no fingers either. is waiting for you. Based on the mystery novel, The Circular Staircase, The Bat stars Agnes Moorhead as Cornelia Van Gorder, a mystery author leasing a summer home from bank president John Fleming. When John Fleming shows up dead after embezzling $1 million from his bank, Cornelia has to contend with The Bat, a near-mythic criminal who murders women with his steel claws and believes the money is hidden somewhere in Fleming's home. This may surprise you, but I have never seen this movie until you suggested it. Oh, really? I am frankly ashamed of that because uh, my partner Amber owned this on DVD when we first started dating. <laughs> it's It's survived in our collection ever since. So for almost 20 years, this has been sitting with the rest of our movies uh, on shelves or in boxes, and I just, I've never watched it before. I don't know why I never pulled it out. So I'm very glad you put, you you suggested this. It's good, right? You liked it? I liked it a lot. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. I don't know what I was expecting from it, but it's another one of those like kind of crappy looking public domain mm-hmm. DVDs. And what makes this even more shocking is that every year for Vincent Price's birthday, which I think was yesterday in terms of when this episode drops like it it's still ahead of us but by when this episode comes out it'll have been the day before uh on Vincent Price's birthday I try to watch a couple of movies and every year I try to watch at least one or two that I've never seen before and for all these years that I've been doing it I've been doing it at least a decade now I've never once decided to pull out the bat I always go for something different and I have no idea why well I'm glad that this prompted you to watch it I think my copy, it's got three films on it and it has that crappy public domain look. It's uh, the bat is sandwiched in between Frankenstein's daughter and Carnival of Souls. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that that's the copy I bought a long time ago. And I always just play this one. I keep saying comforting, but yes, with their the way they speak and just like the, the soundtrack and everything. But Agnes Moorhead. I think the first time I saw her was obviously watching like Nick at night as a kid. She was Endora on Bewitched and she always had like these amazing captains. And I just, I just loved her. And she tends to be cast in these roles as like this crazy matriarch. And you see it within this film as well. And I really like it. I think her and Vincent Price work really well together. Yeah, this is a great film. So before I say too much more about it, I'll let you jump in with, cause I could go on forever about this film. So. You go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, I I was a bit surprised by it, by how much I liked it. Um, I didn't I didn't quite know it was a mystery who done it. I I don't know I don't know what I thought the plot was. Uh, I didn't think it was going to be a supernatural film, but I just wasn't expecting it to be what it turned out to be. And 
it, it also has kind of a nice fun tone. But I know what you mean by calling this comforting. Like this is this is a type of movie that when when I think on on a Sunday afternoon of watching a movie like this just reminds me of like watching TCM on a Sunday afternoon and it's snowing outside you know or I'm doing I'm folding laundry or something which maybe sounds like I'm I'm putting the movie down like it's not not worthy of attention which is not what I'm saying I'm just saying that this is like this is a movie I could see once now that I've seen it, I could see it kind of going in the background. And, oh, absolutely. And like providing a nice soundtrack. Yeah. If I'm doing stuff around the house or, you know, working on a costume or something, it's, it's one of my go-tos to have on in the background. I mean, it's one of those that's just going to stay in the rotation. It's, it's, it's always there. Yeah. I could, I could see that too. I, I wish there was a better version of this because, you know, I, this is shameful admission number, what, two or three now. <laughs> I said I have we have this movie on on DVD and I went to watch it and because because it just seemed easier for me at the time I didn't want to get up I watched it on Tubi <laughs> instead of pulling my DVD off the shelf and it it was okay I I went and looked around to see what who had the better copy sometimes you can find like really good looking things on YouTube this movie is on YouTube it's it's not quite as good as what's on Tubi and Tubi is still a little like kind of fuzzy. It's not like the cleanest copy of it, but it, it, it didn't have like any tracking issues at least. And the audio was clear, which can be a problem in public domain, black and white films, but uh, it had ads. And I don't know why, like so lazy of me. I should just pull the DVD off and watch that. Well, I mean, it was also on prime too, as I think I mentioned earlier. I know, I know, but no, I mean, as long as you were able to watch it clearly and, and enjoyed it. I mean, now, you know, so. <laughs> but yeah, so the movie, um, I kind of knew like right from the beginning, I was going to like this movie when Agnes Moorhead came in and she kind of has like this, she's got this really nice, uh, this really nice demeanor. Like she's really quick and she's not quite acerbic. She's not putting people down, but she is not, you know, she's not letting anybody walk over her. She is taking command whenever she's talking. I found her character to be a lot of fun. And when I realized like, oh, she's playing a mystery writer who is renting a house in the summer and uh, gets you know involved in a local mystery. I was like, this movie is right up my alley. This is gonna be fun. It is so much fun. And, and just the way they, she talks and then she's got the, um, who ends up being a pretty important character, Warner who used to be the chauffeur, but is now like her butler. But when they talk back and forth and they're like, Miss Van Gorder. And she's like, yes, Warner. And just the way they, <laughs> it's, I just love the way that they kind of talk and banter. And then um, Lizzie Allen, her, her go-to gal and her, her maid um, refers to her as Miss Corny, which I love because she's an author. So she's like, don't call me that when you're referring to my work, like my books. Yeah. They have some pretty good relationships, I think, in it. Also, a couple of the characters have kind of a mysterious past. And so it leads into the whole whodunit. And she's she's renting the Oaks, which is this large, really large house for the summer, which happens to be, you know, you kind of mentioned the opening of the film. John Fleming had embezzled from his own bank and then was going to fake his own death. And Dr. Wells, played by Price, is his physician, and he just decides to go camping with his physician. 
which I thought was kind of odd, but there we are. Yeah. And yeah. again, Price, Dr. Wells is two steps ahead of him. So, you know, that's kind of how it all begins. It's like, well, we need a body to bring back to, to show that I've died so he can, you know, get away with taking all this money and uh, fake his own death. And then, well, we need a body. And so Wells makes that happen. <laughs> but there's a lot of really interesting characters. So right away, we see that Wells has done that. And that sets him as the villain for everything else that happens in the rest of the movie. Anytime anything goes wrong, you're going to automatically think it's Wells. Yeah. And he's like, if you watched enough of these movies, you know, pretty early on, he's got to be a red herring. There's got to be somebody else as well. Like, it can't just be him. Mm -hmm. But it, it does, the movie does a good job of providing a lot of believable suspects like it really literally could be just about anybody at a certain point in the movie and i think i had it figured out fairly early on who it ended up being but it's to this movie's credit that i was still kind of second guessing myself like uh, i think it's this person but maybe it's this guy over here um and I'm not starting to say I'm the smartest person in the world. I, uh, certainly plenty of other whodunits have fooled me in the past. But uh, but this one, I thought, like, I thought the mystery was much more satisfying than a lot of others I've seen. Uh, one, like, you talk about the characters and their relationships. And you brought up, uh, like, briefly, you were talking kind of about Warner. You liked Cornelia. Uh, you like Cornel Cornelia and um, Warner. But you mentioned briefly Lizzie, her <laughs> maid, and they have such a, a really fun relationship. All of her staff leaves except for Lizzie, and Lizzie stays with her. Uh, one, once, like the, the staff thinks the house is haunted because they hear <laughs> noises, and there's the word that the bat has returned to this part of the country uh, after being you know, dormant for years. And so everybody's getting nervous and the staff all leave. And the only person that's left is Lizzie. And it's a dark and stormy night and the bat is trying to break in and they see him and they, they kind of hold up in Cornelia's room as while she calls the cops that night. She's like, we're not, we're not going out. We're going to barricade ourselves in this room. You can sleep in this room. And she sleeps on the couch. And from that night on, they just sleep in the same room together. Like there's a point where several days pass. Like they think the, the, you know, the initial incident with the bat in the beginning of the movie is done with. They think that's kind of like things have quieted down. It's been long enough that she's hired new staff for the house. And and it cuts to them like, like uh, what, how is it explained? But Liz Lizzie is still there and does not appear to be the maid anymore. But she's like, they're all hanging around. They have a bunch of house guests and like, oh, well, you can stay here. You can stay in these rooms. And like, well, where is she going to sleep? And she's like, oh, Lizzie sleeps in my room. Like they just continued like carried on her sleeping in the room with her and it shows her in there on the couch but they have like this really very close relationship for what would be a you know an, an employer and a servant kind of setup uh but i really like the fact that they just like kind of like become closer and like grasp onto each other when things are starting to get really like scary around it's very around sisterly it is and it it was very fun to see and they like you said she calls her corny all the time um certainly a level of familiarity that not a lot of maids would have but it was still um 
like it's still fun like you said yeah there's definitely a lot of care going on between the two of them like that's that's her her right hand her right hand gal so now have you seen any of the other versions of this movie no i haven't i don't know if i want to but maybe after i talk to you my mind will be changed so okay there's a lot of adaptations of this this book was serialized in all story magazine in 1907 and and then it was published in book form in 1908 it was adapted as a silent film in 1915 and then as an episode of climax in 1956 yeah it was a play it was also uh, a live theatrical play as well yeah yeah and in 1920 it became a broadway play which then was adapted by mary pickford as a silent film in 1926. So that's two two silent film versions of this story already. And then that film was adapted, or maybe maybe it's just straight from the play, but 1930 as The Bat Whispers, mainly to make it, I guess, to make it a talkie. Mm. And then the final version is this one, The Bat, with uh, Agnes Moorhead and Vincent Price. So I was surprised how many versions of this there were, that it was such a, like a, a popular, well-known story was a bit surprising to me. I would like to read it, The Circular Staircase. I haven't read that, and I would like to read that. Yeah, um, I, I enjoyed this enough that I was kind of like, I, I really want to know more about this. So I, I thought about that too, about reading it and maybe watching all of the versions of it. I mean, that happens a lot in, uh, in old Hollywood. People like to talk about how remake-happy Hollywood is these days, which it it certainly is. But that, that's not, no, not, sorry. That is not new at all. No, I mean, look at like the Adams family versus the monsters and then like the, you know, the old comic that spurred all that. So there, yeah, it's, it's not a new thing, but I think we definitely live in an instant gratification society now. So a lot of these remakes are going to come out a lot harder and faster. Not only that, but so much has already been done. I think a lot of people are like, well, what's next? Everything's already been done. What do we do? They re- yeah. I think they remake stuff a lot more than they used to and faster. Well, I don't know about that because we're talking about this and this this version of The Bat, 1959, is the the fourth film version, right? There were two silent films by 1920. Uh, and then I, I the one I always bring up is The Maltese Falcon. The version that, the famous version with Humphrey Bogart, that's the third version of that film in less than a decade like they they made it in uh the pre-code era and then they remade it and because they couldn't they couldn't show that film version anymore they couldn't distribute it so they needed to make it to fit the new Hayes code and then they remade it again with uh Humphrey Bogart and that's the one that became the biggest hit yeah I mean it's definitely been you know repeated throughout history I just feel like Today, I feel like it just comes a lot faster and harder with the remakes, you know? Well, today it's certainly done more by, well, I don't know if more by, but it, it's certainly an idea by committee. It's it's like one company owns all of this IP, you know, they, they, they just want to capitalize. They don't, without uh, investing much more into any anything new and untested, which is, has been the, you know, kind of the way it's been going for a long time and you're right it, it is probably worse today than it it used I to mean be. every everything's kind of that way though like fashion is fast fast 
fast fashion, I mean, trends in fashion from let's use 1908 as an example, you know, that changes so quickly now, whereas then it, it didn't, it took years for, for these new things to make their way around the world. And um, I don't know, I feel the same way about film and fashion a little bit in that sense, but overall, I yeah. just think now we're definitely like this. Yeah. Instant gratification. I think we've talked a lot about in the last episode about like um, the CGI, like computer generated, the graphics and everything versus like all the, the time and care that goes into, or not, if you want it to look, you know, like Lucille Fulci's zombies um, into creating something, <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah. Yep. And I think that this, this rendition of the film, I don't feel like there's anything missing with it. A lot of times when I see like newer remakes or they just seem like cheap and not thought out very well. Um, but this rendition of the film is great. I don't, I don't feel like anything's missing with it. There's nothing more I really am wanting to see. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I get it. But my mind could be changed if I were to like read the circular staircase and then say, well, wait a minute, you know, just like a lot of other stuff that's adapted from book to film, things get left out. You can't fit a whole novel into like, what is this movie? Just over an hour. So. Oh yeah. It's like an hour and 20. It's okay. Not a, it's. It's not a very long movie. Yeah, it's about an hour and a half. I think House on Haunted Hill was just about an hour long, I think. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just didn't really feel like anything was missing with this one. But I definitely do want to check out The Circular Staircase. Yeah, I, I went and looked and, and uh, well, I didn't look for the book. I looked for the other versions. And um, at least one of the silent versions is pretty readily available. Well, I'll have to check that out, too. So uh, apparently um, in an interview, Vincent Price took this film role partly because the stage version of the bat had terrified him when he was a child. And he thought the, uh, the movie would, would revive it and bring it up to date. But um, he did not like this movie. He was not a very big fan of it. He didn't think it had a, a very good script. Hmm. Well, we haven't really talked about the conclusion of the film or how it kind of panned out. Do we want to say that or do you want to leave that on a cliff? No, no, we can do that. Like, okay. We're going to talk about the conclusion here. So if you want to go into this movie without being spoiled, it is a whodunit. You do want to kind of like know who, or like go in without knowing who the uh, the murderer is, then you should probably skip ahead or stop <laughs> listening. Or watch the movie first and then come yeah, back. Yeah, press, press pause, go watch the movie for, spend about an hour and a half for, uh, yep. Oh, yep. An hour and 20 minutes, hour and 20 minutes, and then come on back. <laughs> Available on Prime. Um, yes. <laughs> um, well, there we cut. We talked about the clawed hands uh, with one of the servants in um, House on Haunted Hill, and <laughs> there's kind of this repeat with with the bat. So when Lizzie is sleeping in Miss Van Gorder's room, and they put that little trinket up in that window because it doesn't have a bolt, it's missing to wake them up if someone opens that window. And you see this clawed hand just like push it open with these nails. And I'm like, oh man, like, I mean, they look kind of similar to, you know, the acrylic nails I get done. So like, but they're like just on the tips of these gloves and um, they slightly push it open. And then this like bat on a string, which is just like this plastic bat kind of flopping around, just like the skeleton coming out of the acid. And so now... 
now yeah. that we've talked about that, I'm picturing <laughs> Vincent Price wearing some kind of apparatus that's like controlling this bat so it can fly around the room. But, um, but yeah, that one's great. And you, he's always kind of around. So Dr. Wells is always kind of around. We already know he was involved in uh, John Fleming's death. So John Fleming didn't actually end up faking his death, but Wells made sure it actually happened. So we know he's, we know he's skulking around and he's after that money. And we know he knows it's in the house somewhere at the Oaks. And so he keeps coming back at inopportune times. Um, the bat gets wounded. Maybe Wells comes back and he's now got a wound and he's like, oh, it was a car accident. So there's so many things that happen that make us think that while Wells is one of the villains, for sure, in this, we think he's responsible for all of it. So um, that poor young thing, Judy, gets killed um, because she was going to testify for... Uh, um, gosh, what was his name? I just totally spaced out on his name. He's on trial uh, for the the money going missing. Victor oh, yeah. Bailey. Victor Bailey. So so Victor Bailey's wife Dale and Judy, who also worked at the bank, come to stay. Those are the house guests. And um, Judy gets murdered by the bat. And we think, of course, this is the same villain because that's who was going to testify to free Victor Bailey from being having all that theft pinned on him. So there's a lot going on with that. And in, in murdering her, the back gets injured. Vincent Price comes back in, he's wounded and he's just, you know, making a random house call. And so, um, Lieutenant Andy Anderson, <laughs> the main like detective in this is Andy Anderson. Yeah. He seems to be pretty much on everyone about this. Like he's very suspicious. He knows something's up with that doctor. So we see Andy Anderson <laughs> as this, you know, genuine detective that's trying to, to solve this and is on to Vincent Price's shit. Like he's investigating his lab while he's away, all that stuff. But in the end, it's Lieutenant Andy Anderson. Womp womp. Yeah, I, I kind of had an idea about that and it was solidified there's a scene i think it's the scene you're talking about where vincent price comes back and he's wounded after the car accident and he exits the house and he's having a conversation on the porch with lieutenant anderson and if you think that vincent price is the bat it looks like lieutenant anderson is kind of like putting the screws on him he's like uh he's kind of like letting him know I I'm watching you and he says the line, he says, I think a lot of people are going to be very surprised when I crack this case. And Vincent price looks at him and he's just like, I'm sure they will be. And if you think Vincent price is the bat, the obvious reading is that the cop is trying to let him know. Right. But at that point I was already thinking like, no, Vincent price isn't because that's too obvious. This isn't a whodunit if they've told us in the opening scenes who the person is, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so I was like, oh, so that means it's not Vincent Price. Either the cop is wrong or he is the bat. And I, I was like, that's what solidified it for me, I think. And then that was just my assumption going forward. Well, they also try to kind of between the two of them pin it on Warner because they're like, Warner's not even a real name. You have this history. It turns out you're not who you say you are. So then, then we start to look at Warner as a potential suspect. Yeah. For, and because he comes from somewhere else. The bat was a traveling serial killer. Warner comes from somewhere else. He has 
he has a past, um, he's been on trial and has changed his name. And so it's easy for them to try to pin it on him, but he ends up kind of saving the day in the end and comes back and shoots the bat. Yeah. I, I thought briefly about him, but he didn't like, he didn't seem like a very plausible suspect either partially because it didn't seem like he would, uh, he would have all the knowledge of what's going on in the town that everybody would need, but also because like, it can't be the Butler that did it. Like, that, that seems, <laughs> right. But he that, does that have seems... knowledge of the Oaks and the Oaks has that secret room. So uh, yeah, he could have yeah. had some intimate knowledge about the setup of the house and known where the money was stashed. Um, because true. everyone else that was killed, like Fleming's nephew was killed when he, he snuck in to like, he was trying to help. He wasn't being villainous, but um, he snuck in and was trying to help to find the blueprints so that they could figure this out. And he was murdered by the bat. So it was like anyone who was trying to have access to that home was killed. So I feel like it was plausible in one way that it could have been Warner, but, but I knew it wasn't at the same time, you know, because it, again, I feel like it would have been too obvious, but they kind of show that to you and they kind of set him up in a way. So then so in this one, we have like these multiple villains, just like House on Haunted Hill, there's multiple people involved in, in making a mess of things. And it's the same with this story too. So you mentioned that Mark Fleming, who uh, he gets killed when he comes in uh, to look for the blueprints. He's, he's got a little side story that never quite develops, but seems like it's, it's kind of going to be a pretty typical thing for this type of movie where he is it never says they're in a relationship but he is clearly like oh he loves judy <laughs> yeah it doesn't say they're in a relationship right but he kind of like wants there to be one mm-hmm. and just there's a little bit of a line of dialogue where he says that um that it's a, he's talking to uh i think lieutenant anderson right that he tells mm-hmm. her that, yep. that he really likes her and yep. so then like the next scene, Lieutenant Anderson kills him when he goes in and finds the blueprints. I I was surprised that the movie did that. The movie killed the two young lovers in this one. And it surprised me when they killed Mark, but then when when he killed Judy later on, I was like, oh man, movie, <laughs> you're not like you're not this isn't an incredibly dark movie. This isn't very brutal, but that that choice to kill Judy and Mark seemed very dark like it seemed like the movie wasn't pulling its punches there right yeah definitely because there's people in that movie where it kind of sets us up to think it kind of like with Nora and Lance in House on Haunted Hill it kind of sets us up to think something's going to happen there like this is going to be a love story between the two of them and you know potentially they'll be the victors in this whole thing and they'll go off and be happily ever after but totally doesn't happen oh Man, I meant to bring that up in in our discussion on House on Hill, but yeah, correct, it, totally. It's another little, um, it is another uh, another kind of similarity. These are these turned out to be really, really great pairings, actually. I think so too. I mean, a lot of this is motivated by what money. Money was the motivation potentially for Annabelle to marry Lauren and money was the motivation for all the guests to come and money is the motivation in the bat as well. Yeah. And, and it, it, it both, they both depend on, on people using superstition and possibly supernatural uh, 
motives, not motives, but like the guise of the supernatural in a way to do it because they're pretending it's, you know, ghosts and hauntings and haunt house on Haunted Hill. In this one, it's pretending that it's this killer called the bat that people have kind of certainly view as almost supernatural in the way that he, he kind of can get in and, and kills women um, by well, he's referred to as the man without a face. Yeah. Because um, he, he just covers it in cloth. Yeah. He is ready for the pandemic, but yeah, he is completely covered. And all you see is his like his little talons on his gloves. Yeah, it's a really good look. I, I mean, I think in long shot long shots, the bat looks pretty cool when you get up close. I, I think that, you know, just like the black cloth sack over his head looks a little cheesy. Um, <laughs> Certainly looks very good in silhouette when they open the door and they see the bat silhouette in the uh, like the lightning flash. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Um, I just want to, you you mentioned the bat, the the quote, quote unquote real bat in the bedroom. That <laughs> so the bat puts an animal bat in there. You know that it's flying around. You were talking about that. Mm-hmm. It is in it is the fakest bat. It's like square. <laughs> It looks like it's a box that was painted by it, it. It's so much so that when he puts it down and the close the close up on it shows how fake it is. I thought he was putting in some mechanical device, like he was he was actually Batman and his gadgets were just bat shaped, right? And then, and then it's flying around. I'm like, oh, he's got a remote control bat. And then the bat bit her, and Vincent Price catches the bat and is like, I'll dissect its brain to see if it has rabies. And I was like, oh, it. That was a real bat? It was supposed like, to be real. And did you see the giant one that's in his lab? Yeah, yeah. When, hey, when I, Andy Anderson goes in there to snoop around and he opens the curtains and there's that like giant, obviously fake bat behind the yeah. Um, the, the cop in this deciding to pin everything on Vincent Price because he, he's, he's going to kill Vincent Price and leave an incriminating note. And yet his incriminating note is just taped to the wall and says, the bat facing exposure decided to destroy himself. I, I don't know. I don't know how stupid he thought, thinks his other cops are. Like that <laughs> they're going to see that and think it's a suicide note, especially after he's shot himself in the stomach. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 it's kind of silly. I mean, Let's just not dissect that one too much. <laughs> well, We'll just enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, there is silliness in this movie. I think it is meant to be a more serious movie than House on Haunted Hill. Yeah. Uh, but but it, it just like, there's a lot of it that's just kind of like, oh, don't pay attention to this. Don't, don't it's smoke and mirrors, smoke and mirrors. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I love that one. It's, I don't know. I, I keep just wanting to use the word comforting. So I'm just going to use that word. It's comforting. It's Yeah, why not? Why it's not? the right amount of campy um it just it sounds good like i love just listening to it and and really the way it it hears to me like just the audio for it totally reminds me of like the old time radio like like i said like i could listen to vincent price on the radio forever so it's it's one of those perfect ones to throw in when you've got other stuff to do if you've already seen it a few times um and if you're a fan of vincent price or agnes moorhead i think they both shine in this film and Vincent Price to me always kind of embodies like this fatherly type figure. I think the first thing I ever saw him in 
was probably Edward Scissorhands in the, I think I was about eight years old when that came out. So okay. I saw that when I was pretty young. And that was one of his last films. Um, and obviously his story in that film, it was just sad and heartbreaking, but he, he was always such a fatherly figure. So after I saw him in that growing up, I always like anything else I saw him in, he just always had this like patriarchal like presence to me, the way he spoke, like he had somewhat of authority. He was like that kind of handsome that you want your father to be, you know, but not in like a creepy way, but just like, oh, my father is so handsome. And he just seems to have like that fatherly presence of, he just seemed classy and like someone I admired and, um, but that was my first exposure to him was an Edward Scissorhands. And I just like started becoming obsessed with everything he did after that. Um, and he makes appearances in even like what Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Um, just, he's kind I mean, of just he, everywhere. He worked a lot. He, he did work a lot. I mean, he, he ended up kind of getting stuck in this horror ghetto, if you want to call it that. I don't, I don't consider it that, but that's kind of like how it's, it's perceived. Um, but even then he was still like he was still while doing these horror movies in the late 50s in things like the ten commandments so he was still doing you know big films uh, eventually in the 60s and the 70s i think he got a little bit stuck in that but i don't think he would have considered it that and he sounds like he was always really happy to be in these movies and to be remembered for them so uh i mean good for him i mean he had a, a career that I think just about anybody would be enviable of or would envy. Oh yeah. And, and can we talk about his cooking and his cookbooks? Oh yeah. I'm, I wish I had some, had one of his cookbooks. I would like one of them. Too. I don't have any of them yet, but I would, I would really like to get one of his cookbooks. Um, yeah. Everything about this man is just kind of endearing to me. I bet it's all that like really awful mid-century food though mid-century American food where it's like jello, jello and hot dogs with everything. <laughs> <laughs> I, I doubt it. There's probably some of that in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He seemed to be a connoisseur, but I mean, even some of those dishes, I don't mind trying out. You're right. I, I, oh, hey, they're, they're available still. They're like, they're still either in print or not very expensive. Oh yeah. You can still get them. I've just, I just haven't gotten around to it, but it's been, it's been something I've wanted. Oh, well, I mean, treat yourself. <laughs> yes, I should get around to that. We, um, I, I don't think I'd be able to make any of those, though. We're, we're really cooking on a diet these days. It, it, I don't think we'd be able to make anything that isn't in those cookbooks now. <laughs> uh, maybe you could modify something. Oh, I'm sure we could. I'm sure we could. We, we're doing a lot of that with other things. So um, I just haven't gotten around to I mean, I've lived alone for four or five years now. So... I don't cook that much for myself when it comes to like actual cuisine so much as I just make like quick, fast things for myself. So, yeah, but if I entertained more or didn't live alone, I, I would certainly make use of the cookbooks, but he just has so many endearing things about him. And do you have anything more that you want to say about the bat before we get going? I think that pretty much wraps it up. I was, I was trying to think if there was anything else. I, I, I feel like I, I did have something I wanted to say, but I, um, 
I don't know if you want to rank you want to rank these at all. I'm not I'm not ranking these to say definitively one is better than the other. I do think I will be watching the House on Haunted Hill more than I watch this, but I I found this to be a thoroughly enjoy, enjoyable movie, like one that that surprised me quite frankly with how um, how good its quality was and just how how it kind of kept me on my toes. Like I, I wasn't a hundred percent sure who the killer was for most of the movie. Um, all the characters are really interesting and, and well acted and there's good relationships. Uh, no, I thought this was a, re- a really fun movie. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I, I pretty much think we covered everything um, for that film. I'm sorry. I'm getting distracted. There's like people working on cars outside. It's very loud. I hope you can't hear it. Uh, we'll see if it's in the recording, but I cannot hear it right now. Okay. I would just encourage any Vincent Price fans to check it out. It seems to be one of the lesser known or lesser celebrated films. It is. It's at least from me, unfortunately. Yeah, it's it's lesser celebrated. And it is it is comparable to House on Haunted Hill, um, which is, you know, more celebrated. And both are available on Prime um, currently. So check it out. Yeah, yeah. Both of these are very, very readily available in the public domain. Uh, I think they're both worth checking out. So mm, people, you don't have any excuses. Don't be like me and wait 20 years to watch this movie, even though it's staring you right in the face. Okay, well, we're back. We're going to just uh, say goodbye here in a second. But before we do, I just figured we'd, we'd talk about any other any other things we got going on, any other movies we wanted to mention. Um, we're talking about Vincent Price all month. So I was just going to see if, if, Panicula, if you had any movies you would recommend from Price, uh, any you want to talk about. Well, uh, we've already kind of mentioned them, but um, so The Fly, Return of the Fly. Yes. But these are probably very obvious picks. House of Wax. The Tingler, um, and his appearances on Lux Radio. I mean, as I've said, he's just so pleasant to just listen to. Um, I guess those would be mine. Or if you're feeling at the Great Mouse Detective. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, I maybe I'll watch that this year too. I haven't seen that in a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, that that the Great Mouse Detective is really good. Um, I. Those were all good. I just watched the Fly movies this last Christmas. I got the box set of all of them, the original three from Fox and then the 80s remake and sequel. And that, like, they're not all perfect. (laughs) Not all of these, but that first Fly with Vincent Price is so much fun. It, It makes so many weird choices. There are so many just bizarre almost comedic touches in there that i i really enjoyed and yet there's a, there's also some stuff in that movie that really creeps me out i think i can't remember how he says it when he the the guy that's turning into the fly says uh he he's he's he he's trying to talk his wife into killing him and he's saying that he just can't think anymore like he he says or he types it out because he can't talk and the phrase kind of stuck with me. He says, my brain says strange things now, which I found such a creepy moment in that movie. Yeah. Everything around it was also kind of campy and funny at times, 
but then he says that and i was like oh crap that is dark yeah um anything and anything that gets buggy always kind of like gets under my skin a little bit i think growing up in hawaii with like all the b-52 bomber cockroaches and like blah. so oh. any any insecty type stuff i mean i i love those two and it does it does kind of like get under my skin and one of the movies it kind of reminds me of that i saw much later in life was um meet the feebles ah okay. that's a uh, peter peter jackson one of his films and the fly like eating shit with a spoon it just kind of like <laughs> reminds me of that a little bit like later in life i just kind of tied those two together it's just like this gross like oh yeah voice nastiness um but those are great films and we talked about the tingler and i think on the last episode we did because i've already mentioned this i didn't really want to mention it again but on the last episode we did we talked about some foreign zombie slash vampire movies when so my recommendation for that one was last men on earth because it was filmed in rome partly and um in that one it's, it's an interesting i mean he doesn't have a lot of whole lot of speaking and things going on for a lot of that movie so that one's kind of a different yeah we, we just talked about that a couple of weeks ago everybody can go back and listen to that episode with carlos but um, I'm with you. That's a really good movie. That's my favorite version of that book because it, it was remade as the Omega Man and um, then I Am Legend with Will Smith. Uh, the Vincent Price one still remains the best one for me. Yeah, definitely. So um, before we get going, do you have anything personally going on? Any Anything coming up uh, that you want to promote or send people towards? Um, well, um, as I think I mentioned earlier, I've very excited for the pandemic to be ending. I think the last episode we talked, it was still kind of this very devastating to all theaters, venues, restaurants, bars, um, performers. And it's just, it's so nice to, to finally be able to get back on stage. And I'm really excited to be able to bring two of my favorite acts back. Um, it kind of, it feels like a whole revival right now, like a renaissance. Um, June 5th, uh, if you're in Anchorage, I'll be performing at the Cheeky Room which is downtown where Matanuska uh, Brewing used to be. It's now the Broken Blender, I believe, but downstairs is the Cheeky Room. They have a lovely venue. I feel really lucky that they've invited me to come perform with them and it will be a great uh, debut to come back out. So that's Saturday, June 5th, if you are in Anchorage at the Cheeky Room with Sweet Cheeks Cabaret. Awesome, cool. Uh, yeah, this gives people a bunch of time. I think I still have some listeners in Anchorage. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> As for me, um, well, I got nothing going on but this show. Uh, just keep listening to this every week. Um, in uh, about a month from when this episode drops, I'm going to be starting my big uh, several-month-long maxi-series. It's Summer in the Shadows. We're going to be talking all about film noir this summer, so everybody get ready for that. Uh, and the rest of it still applies. If you are enjoying what you're listening to, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't. Uh, those ratings and reviews do help. If you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, both places at Two Headed Pod. And if you want to say anything to me directly, I've got a Gmail at Two Headed or not at Two Headed Pod, <laughs> uh, Two Headed Pod at gmail.com. So uh, lots of ways to get a hold of us if you want. And I think that'll do it from us. Thanks everybody for listening. I'll see you next week with another incredible Two Headed Podcast.